Real stories, reliable information, the latest technology and news. Welcome to the Plastic Surgery Hub podcast, connecting people with practitioners. Hello listeners, it's Trish Hammond here again from Transforming Bodies podcast. And today I'm speaking with um, Associate Professor Janutsis, who's actually a specialist plastic surgeon based in Sydney. And now I know Dr. Janutsis does lots of um, face surgery, like, like, you know, facelifts, neck lifts, that sort of thing. So we're going to have a chat about that today because I've been asked a lot on our group and sent DMs as well. So I thought, well, let's find out all about what he does and how he does it and what makes him so good at it. So welcome, Dr. Janutsis. How are you? I'm well, Trish. Thank you. That's good. That's good. So tell us, just before we actually start on, so you've been a plastic surgeon for a long time, haven't you? Well, not a long time, but you know what I mean? A pretty long time. Yeah, for quite some time. I was fortunate enough to get through the program relatively quickly. So I began as a consultant plastic surgery in my very early 30s. So yeah, I have been in practice for quite some time Mm -hmm. uh, in private practice, but I also work at um, the public and the children's hospitals as well. Yeah, I actually have a, a girlfriend who um, had a, a cleft palate and I think you, you, I don't know, you've been, you did lots of operations on her when she was younger. So when I mentioned your name, she's like, oh, I love him. He's just so good. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had done cleft early on, but I, I don't do that so much now. But I am the uh, director of the craniofacial unit. So, you know, children with misshapen heads and faces and and all those sorts of things. And we yeah. have other people who are doing cleft then now. Yeah, of course. And I guess it's a, um, it kind of happens like that. You kind of, it's something that everybody starts off and gets really good at. And then you, of course, move on to, you know, more, I don't know, yeah, different surgeries. Things. Yeah, That's exactly. Right, yeah. Yeah. So tell us, so we've been getting lots of inquiries about, you know, you know, where can I go for a facelift? How long does it take? And, you know, is it safe? And do I have to grow my hair? And there's a whole bunch of questions. So I thought I'd just kind of ask you, you know, one by one and we'll kind of make it conversational as well. But first of all, yeah. like who is a facelift for? Like say, for example, you know, like do they have to be a certain age or could it be someone that loses weight or it's, you know, anyone? Is there a specific demographic that a facelift could be for? I don't think there's any specific demographic. I think it can be done for all sorts of different indications. But, um, you know, it's for the person who feels that, I guess, when they look at themselves in the mirror, they don't see the person they thought they should. And as you say, that can be related to significant weight loss and certainly a moderate degree amount of my practice is related to people who have had bariatric surgery and not only do they have skin excess elsewhere in the body that we deal with, but oftentimes it's also reflected in the face. And they have that sort of, for want of a, a less uh, a pun term, she has, they have that deflated sort of appearance and deflated emotionally as well, having had that great triumph of the weight loss. They then are left with a lot of excess skin. And that's, as I said, often reflected in the face as well. So that's one group. Um, I guess the majority of people who are, are those who have had ageing changes in their face. So they lose a bit of volume, both bony volume as well as uh, soft tissue volume. They have some droop in the uh, cheek fat pad. They have jowl formation. And they start to lose that definition between the chin and the neck and the neck skin becomes lax. 
so there's there's lots of different people who, who sort of fall into that category it's no one age group nor demographic um it would be unusual to do a facelift in someone you know, younger than their 40s but sometimes we do that in patients who have had trauma or they may have had weakness in one or other side of their face and that can occur but it's mainly in people in their 40s 50s 60s and 70s and you know really in their 80s who would have this sort of procedure done um, and it's about giving those patients not a different look not a new look not like trying to make them look like someone else but to give them a refreshed appearance and i know that sounds a little cliche but that's what most of my patients are after not for someone to say oh gee you've had a facelift yeah but to say gee you're looking well gee you're looking refreshed as i said it's a little cliche but it's in fact true for the vast majority of people i have to totally agree with you i think um uh, i mean I'm, I'm sure it's different over in in los angeles or somewhere like that but i, I think over here i think we all or a lot of people still like to look natural they just want to look you know refreshed or just look like they've looked after themselves or just you know don't want to look at all that saggy baggy stuff that's happening ha starts happening after you get to a certain age, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the key to the operation is to make it look like you haven't had an operation. Not, not by that, I don't mean that there's no difference, but that it, the difference looks absolutely natural. It looks like you and that you haven't had an operation. Mm -hmm. um, and there are technical ways of achieving that, but that's, that's the sort of philosophical aim of the procedure. Yeah. And so I'm trying to read my own writing here. Uh, oh, recovery. So how long, so someone actually, let's maybe talk about the process. So is, is a facelift um, surgery day surgery? Almost always not. I usually do it um, with patients having a couple of nights in, not that they're terribly uncomfortable or in pain um, or need a lot of attention, but they can take it absolutely dead quietly in hospital and that's really important in the first 48 hours not to exert yourself make sure that any pain you might have is a control and that does make much more rapid your recovery mm -hmm. so if you have excess pain if you try to do too much in that first 48 hour period things like bleeding and excessive swelling can occur now on occasion a more uh, a less extensive facelift could be done as a day-only procedure, but not as a rule. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, I really like the sound of that, believe it or not, because to go in and out the same day just kind of freaks me out, and I, I've actually thought it was a day procedure. So, so a couple of days in hospital. Yeah, usually a couple of nights in, you know, the night right. of the procedure and then one after that. At that time, you know, I generally see my patients fairly early in the morning. Their dressings, which are quite bulky initially, are removed. There's usually a little drain, very fine plastic tubing that comes out just behind the ear that decreases any excess tissue fluid or blood that can accumulate there. And there's some good evidence that it decreases the amount of swelling that one gets uh, following the procedure as well. Those drains are removed. Patients have a shower, they wash their hair, the nursing staff can help them with the uh, uh, chin strap type garment that they use for then two weeks following the surgery. That's just a, 
elasticized garment that does up at the back of the neck and at the top of the head with the Velcro and used most of the time in that two week period. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll usually go home very comfortable at that time. Okay. And, and with that compression, you said two weeks, so do they only need to wear it for two weeks or is it because I thought most compression was worn for like 12 weeks? No, they just use that for a couple of weeks, at which time most of their swelling and almost all of their bruising will be gone. And even though I say to people, look, it's three or four weeks probably before you want to get back to your normal activities, social activities uh, and the like, most people get back to it earlier than that. But you're right, some activities are a bit limited for a little longer. So I say to my patients that they shouldn't engage in any really vigorous physical activity, any head down sort of physical activity where there's excessive stress and strain. And that includes things like Pilates and yoga for about six weeks. Um, they can do things with their head up and lighter sort of exercise in that time. But having your head down really straining can increase swelling, can make you, it make bleeding occur, and it just can slow up your recovery more than it needs to. Yep. Well, you know what, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and on that point, apart from the fact that two weeks sounds really good, I think anyone can do two weeks. Um, do you have to sleep up for a certain amount of time? Yeah. Yeah, in the first phase after the procedure, you sleep elevated. And I keep my patients, at least for those first two days, elevated at about 30 to 45 degrees. And it just decreases swelling and bruising. And my, I advise my patients to do that for the first week when they go home. Now, some people really can't tolerate sleep, sleeping head up. Um, and in that case, you know, they, sleep is more important than swelling. And so that, uh, you know, they will do that for a shorter period. But it just does help to decrease your swelling and bruising, as well as cool packs and the like, which are used in that uh, first few days and up to the first week. And, you know, with, with painkillers, I know everybody's different, but do you reckon um, people would be able to get off, like I'm presuming they have heavy-duty painkillers when they go home from hospital? Look, just very initially, I am very wary of the use of opioid-type analgesics, and I try to avoid them at all where possible and only use them very sparingly. Facelift is not a particularly painful procedure. It's very unusual to have significant pain requiring opioid-type uh, pain release. And what I mean by that is, you know, oxycodone, endone, uh, codeine, those sort of uh, uh, analgesics for anything after they go home. Um, and we just keep people on regular Panadol, some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and it's rare that they need any of those heavy duty pain relief. Um, I, I think they're, they're dangerous, they, unless used wisely, and they can just make you feel a bit fuzzy and confused rather than pain free. So as you can tell, I'm, I'm pretty wary about their use, but we'll use them judiciously in the early phase where required. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that makes sense, actually, because um, I guess you're not really, I mean, you're manipulating or, you know, you're cutting skin and I guess, would you, are you manipulating tissue? Yeah. Look, it's a largely a skin procedure. I guess that, that alludes to what we were discussing before, the, the techniques to be able to give you a natural looking facelift. And it's not tightening your skin solely because that, 
not only give you a wholly unnatural look, it's also a very short-lived look. You know, people will talk about just a limited incision and taking the skin out and tightening that. Really, you get a little bit of swelling with that and with a, a bit of tightening of the skin, that's what gives you a result, but it's very short-lived um, and looks quite unnatural. So the key to do a natural-looking facelift is addressing the deeper tissues. And there are specific ligaments that join the bone and muscles to the overlying skin. It helps to create some of the fat compartments that we address during a facelift. And it's the deeper layer of tissue. It's sort of like a thin gristle layer that we call a fascia. And it's, it's the superficial musculoaponeurotic system or SMAS in the face. Mm -hmm. And that's contiguous with a very thin layer of investing muscle in the neck called the platysma. And it's that layer which is addressed and tightened, um, which gives you much of the structural change. And then the skin is redraped. And yes, it is tightened and the excess skin removed, but it's not the skin you're relying upon to give you your result. Now, that results in a couple of things. One, it gives you a much more natural result and your skin is not over-tightened. But because your skin is not over-tightened, because there's not a lot of tension, at your incisions, your scars tend to settle down much more rapidly and much better. And so scars are never invisible, but they become uh, you know, almost imperceptible with time, particularly those just in front of the ear and up in behind the ear. Yeah, right. So does, would every facelift have the scar at the front and the scar at the back? Like no, Not every facelift does. Um, I think those in whom you don't need to do a lot of skin excision um, lend themselves well to a, a more limited incision type facelift. And there's a lot of terminology around this and frankly, a lot of marketing around it that um, makes it sound um, more complex than it really is. You really either do a, a shorter or a longer scar facelift. Most of my patients would have a longer scar type facelift. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that you're distributing the excess skin over a longer rather than a shorter distance. You're able to give a better and more natural contour to the skin and to the deeper tissues by doing that. Certainly in patients who are a bit younger who don't need as much lift and you can do it through a shorter incision. But in those who need uh, more skin excised, you can in fact give them an unnatural contour by trying to do it through a shorter incision mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i guess in in the world of um people that have facelift ages when you say someone who's a bit younger are you talking like yeah 40s 50s as opposed to 70s 80s or yeah probably someone in their 40s and i guess you're talking about someone physiologically younger and mm. that doesn't necessarily True. relate to their chronological age so it's, you know, what their skin and their tissues are like rather than necessarily when their birthday was. And that, and that varies a little bit. But generally speaking, you know, the shortest scar facelift is something that someone in their 40s might, might consider, whereas people who are a little bit older than that do much better from what I would regard as the proper operation. Actually, now, like just when you said that it's a marketing around, I've heard so many different styles of facelifts, and it's all for someone who's looking at having one, it's all really, really actually confusing because there's like there's a smash lift, there's a 
deep plane left and there's all these different words and, and, and like we're just like I just want a facelift it's like that milk commercial you know like to like like are there different yeah look I, I think there's a lot techniques. of I think that there are different techniques certainly yeah um but there is a lot of marketing terminology around it you know people trying to create differences out of thin air um as I said in, in my mind there is a shorter scar and a, and a longer scar type facelift. There are ways and means in which the SMAS is dealt with. Um, it can either be what we call placated or tightened through suturing alone, or you can remove a portion of it and then join up the edges, if you like, of it um, to give that contour. Mm -hmm. In most of my facelifts, I do a, what's called a smasectomy, where you remove a portion of the SMAS to then be able to reapproximate that uh, those edges and get the tightening that is required. Um, a deep plane facelift kind of sounds attractive, but the deeper the plane that you take the facelift in, the longer it takes generally for it to settle down, the longer you have swelling for, and probably uh, the higher the risk of the procedure and that's risk to the nerve and any nerve dysfunction that you might have and that's movement nerve in the face so just got to be a little careful with the terminology because it's sort of bandied around um, uh, fairly uh, liberally and there's not a lot of difference often in, in the uh, procedures themselves yep actually uh, that was going to be my next question are there any like what are the risks so um i guess different procedures yeah. have different risks but um because i had actually heard of a situation um once where someone had had um their nerves had just the i don't know what had happened yeah. yeah 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 look i mean facelift like any surgical procedure carries with it some risks you have an anesthetic and there are some risks with that those risks are very low you know, in my patients, my anaesthetists are extremely experienced. I've worked with them for a long period of time. And to my regard, they're, you know, safest and, and the best people around. And, you know, I think people who are, who are doing this procedure a lot have similar relationships with their anaesthetists. Nevertheless, there's a small risk for that. With regard to the surgery itself, there are the obvious matters in that you have scars and they behave somewhat variably in different patients with different skin types and different propensities to making scar. But as we've discussed, there are ways, ways and means of reducing that and reducing that risk and minimizing scars. They can't be negated, but they can be made uh, relatively inconspicuous rather than invisible. Um, there are risks to deeper structures in doing a facelift. And most notably, that is the movement or motor nerves of the face. That's your facial nerve. It moves your brow, it closes your eyes, it allows you to smile symmetrically. Um, it allows you to show your lower teeth and to move the muscle in your neck. Mm -hmm. And there are risks to that nerve. The risks are very low. It's said that the risk, if you look at gr large groups of people, the risk of having an injury to the facial nerve, a temporary injury to the facial nerve is around about 1% and a permanent injury much less than that. I myself have never fortunately had a, a permanent injury to the facial nerve. You know, on occasion you can get a little bit of weakness in one branch or another that might last for three or four weeks 
and settles down. Obviously, it's a worrying time for people when that's there, but it settles down. And mm -hmm. I think that technical um, considerations and approaches to the operation minimise that risk. I think familiarity with the operation, but also familiarity in the region also uh, minimises those risks. And we, you know, we talked earlier of the fact that I run the craniofacial unit at Children's Hospital. And so I'm, I'm operating in that area often much more extensively than one would do in a facelift. And in very young patients, often in babies, under the age of 12 months of age. And so, you know, you have a familiarity with the area. You're familiarity with, familiar with where the nerve is and how you protect that and, and, a, and a comfort with operating in that region as well. Yeah, and that makes so much sense because, you know, if you, like for me, for me, you want someone who does a lot of that kind of work or works a lot in the area to do that particular procedure for you if that's what you're looking for. Yeah, and I think that's right. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you as well, because um, I, I know you're busy, but I've got two more questions. Um, neck, do you just do a neck lift? Because I get asked that all the time and it almost seems that that would yeah. be impossible just to do a neck lift. Look, I get asked that a lot too. And yes, you can just do a neck lift, but it's the rare patient who has just a neck issue and no issue whatever with jowl or something that would benefit um, them in their face as well. So yes, while I will on occasion do a neck lift alone, um, it's much more common to us to combine that as part of a, of a facial rejuvenation. Call mm -hmm. that a facelift if you like. Um, but it's a combination of neck and face, which is almost always addressed. Yeah. So, so would you do a um, neck and lower facelift if someone didn't want the top? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and that's often what happens. The aim of the exercise is to give someone a natural look. And most often that's the combination in someone who only sees their neck as an issue. It may indeed be their predominant issue, but those patients almost always have a degree of ageing change, laxity, ptosis or droop in the lower part of their face and sometimes the upper part of their face as well, but they concentrate on their neck. Now, that's not by any way, shape or means trying to upsell patients to have procedures that they don't want to have. But what they do want to have is a natural looking appearance. So if one was to just address their neck and not those other issues, that that would give them, that wouldn't give them a harmonious look. Yeah. So that's what I'm aiming to give a patient and the terminology is secondary. You know, it's really funny because you are the first person that's ever, that's ever mentioned during a conversation with me that, that um, like, cause I've always thought I want a neck lift, but uh, it's actually my jowls that bother me. And, and like you said, the jowls can't be fixed with a neck lift and that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got one more question, if you don't mind. I just want to ask you, sure. um, do you use stuff, stuff, how bad is that? Do you stuff to fill the face? Like, um, do you use fat or, um, you know, or, or filler or yeah, anything look, like that? Yeah, look, I think more and more... Um, we're using a combination of uh, fat injection with face and neck lifting, particularly in the cheek and malar sort of area. Also, some patients develop 
very sallow or hollow cheeks and fat injection is used in concert with fat uh, with facelifting uh, in those circumstances. So very commonly, perhaps not universally, I will use fat injection to a greater or lesser degree in patients who are having facelift. It can also be used to uh, give some fill to the tear troughs at the lower border of the lower lid um, and improve the contour in that area. Um, I would rarely use synthetic fillers uh, in concert with a facelift. Um, I think uh, fat injection is a much more powerful technique. The fat that takes is much more long lasting than synthetic fillers. Mm -hmm. So that it, it would be fat injection that I would use in concert with yep. face and neck lifting. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. Um, I've got to say, like, I, I know that you've got your next appointment after, so I don't want to keep for too long. So I've got to say thank you so much for joining us. One, can I ask you one more quick little question? Of course. Do, is there the possibility of if someone had a really sharp jaw, would you define, could you shave the, um, the bone if it stuck out too far or is that not something that you would do? Look, you can do that, and I think that um, uh, the jaw can be problematic in, in a number of reasons. Obviously, the chin can be either too or under-prominent, and that can be modified through genioplasty. Mm -hmm. But more, I think, you're talking about the uh, lateral jaw, the angle of the jaw, which can sometimes be very prominent and yes. somewhat masculine in some women. Um, Sometimes that can be related to the fact that they tend to bite down or um, you know, grind their teeth at night time, and that can make the bone actually grow over many years. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be a um, patient demographic issue, and uh, in some Asian populations and some particularly Korean people tend to have a very broad jaw and sometimes cheekbones, and the jaw can be reduced now it's not a particularly commonly performed procedure but it certainly can be and it needs to be planned carefully as part of an, another procedure or a procedure in its own and right yeah right oh that that's really good to know because i do get asked that um um a fair bit you know and i know do people do try you know, Botox and stuff like that, but sometimes it's just not enough yeah, to Botox get Botox will soften it a little bit, but it mm -hmm. won't, if you've got a real bony issue and it's not just the masseter or chewing muscle that's prominent, then shaving down the bone uh, is an option, uh, but it needs to be explored carefully. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, I've got to say, thank you so much for joining us. That's been so, I've spoken to so many people about faces, but, but um, I'm walking away feeling like a whole, I know a whole lot more. Oh, great pleasure, Trish. Thanks. Lovely. Thank you. And listen, look, if you if you want to find out where Dr. Janutsis is, he's actually based in um, Sydney and you can contact his office um, directly on by email on 96504980 or otherwise you can always get in touch with us and we'll put you through to info at plasticsurgeryhub.com.au. So thank you so much for joining us today on this really busy afternoon of yours, Dr. Janutsis. Great pleasure. Thanks, Trish. Thanks heaps. Bye. Bye. The Plastic Surgery Hub podcast, connecting people with practitioners. For more information, visit plasticsurgeryhub.com.au or email info at plasticsurgeryhub.com.au.
The material provided in this podcast is general information and does not constitute medical advice, nor is it a substitute for consultation and advice from your own practitioner. It should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical illness. Any medical or surgical decision should be made in consultation with your own doctor or practitioner and not based on the materials provided in this podcast.